You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Grant Sabatier, and this is the What's Up Next Podcast. This is Jim Dolly, and this is the What's Up Next Podcast. This is Vicki Robin, and you're listening to the What's Up Next Podcast. This is Rock, and you're listening to the What's Up Next Podcast. What are we talking about tonight anyway? Is there a subject to this? <laughs> uh, there, there's no, so it's just random talking. Welcome to What's Up Next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence. Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson. And this is Doc G. So, Paul Thompson... What's up next? Well, Doc, as you know, this is a financial independence-based podcast, and we are always playing with this idea with the difference between wealth and finances. And today, we have a illustrious panel who's going to help us answer the question, is wealth teachable? So I'd like to have each of the guests go around and give a quick introduction, and then we will just dig right into the topic. This is Jim Dolly. I'm a practicing emergency physician and the founder of The White Coat Investor, where I'll help doctors and other high-income professionals get a handle on their finances and quit doing dumb stuff with their money. This is Grant Sabatier. I'm the creator of Millennial Money, where I write about personal finance, entrepreneurship, and investing, and also the author of Financial Freedom. I'm Vicki Robin, and I'm co-author of Your Money or Your Life, and also of of a book on local food called Blessing the Hands That Feed Us and a social activist. My name is Rock Thomas and I'm known to go from farm boy to financially free and teach MMI, make, manage, and invest your money. And I believe you can excel in all of those with the right training. All right. So Jim, I want to start with you. Would you consider yourself wealthy today? And how is that different from when you came out of residency? Absolutely. I would consider myself wealthy. And I think far too many people that are wealthy pretend they're not. You know, people that are worth seven figures are wealthy. I mean, people who are worth six figures are wealthy. If you look across the world, you know, the average person in this world has tiny, tiny amount of wealth. And even the average American that doesn't have much savings is a bit more wealthy than the average person in the world. And so I think it's a good idea to quit denying that you're wealthy when you are and actually acknowledge it. I think there's some value there because it tells not only you 
that you're wealthy, but it tells your psyche that you're wealthy. And so you can afford to give and afford to spend your time and money and effort on making the world a better place and improving the lives of those around you, as opposed to getting this mindset that, you know, it's a scarcity mindset that you're going to lose what you have or some terrible chain of events could occur that could cause you to lose your wealth. And, and then you just hold on to it like a miser and you become really a, a Scrooge if you're not careful. Would you have considered yourself wealthy when you came out of residency? Well, I guess I was more wealthy than most doctors. I didn't actually have student loans. So, you know, I was broke. That's way better than most doctors are when they come out of residency. But I don't think I would have considered myself wealthy at that point. It took a few years of taking my high income and carving out a big chunk of it and using it to build wealth before I would have considered myself wealthy at least five or 10 years out of residency. So Grant, this makes me think a lot about your voyage, financial freedom. And in your book, you talk a lot about kind of being at the bottom when you check your ATM account and you've got a balance of $2.26. Looking back, knowing what you know now, was a lack of funds the problem? That's a great question. I think it actually wasn't. I mean, the lack of funds in the sense that I was living with my parents' house, I couldn't afford rent. So I think there is a difference in terms of being broke when you can't afford to put your own roof over your head. So you can't be self-sufficient. So in that sense, I very much was broke and not wealthy. On the flip side, I naively believed that money was my problem. And I think in reality, looking back, it was more a sense that I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life and also thought that I needed millions of dollars in order to get to this place where I could have more time and space and freedom. And to be honest, it took me getting all the way to financial independence to realize a lot of the things that I was craving, I either A, already had or B, had access to somewhere along the journey much earlier than when I became FI. Vicky, let's talk a little bit about this disconnection between wealth and actual financial well-being. You named your book, Your Money or Your Life. I could have sworn I heard in another podcast that you had thought possibly of naming it Your Money and Your Life. Is that fair to say? Actually, when it was translated into Portuguese in Brazil, they renamed it Your Money and Your Life. I didn't like that. I like the edginess of it the edginess of your money or your life, like, like, just take a look at your behavior, look what you're doing. And so which master are you serving? Are you serving your money? Are you serving your life? And then it introduces the question of really, what is life? You know, what is this amazing thing that I have purchased on, if you will, for 70 years or so? You know, what is my life about? Do I have a choice? I mean, I like the edginess of the or in there. And it's also an old Jack Benny joke, which is fun. Do you think it's a strict dichotomy? No, 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 not at all. But it is trying, it raises, it's almost like the title of the book did half the job because it was like uh, cold water in the face. It's like, what am I spending my life doing? Why is it I bought in to that money is the meaning, purpose, structure of life, that it's my measure of success? It actually, I like it because it introduces the question that's not being asked. It actually introduces the idea that there is something beyond money. And so many people, whether you call it money or profession or status or, you know, identity, whatever you call that thing, that so many people are stuck inside the money paradigm and that money is the measure of all things. 
And so to say your money or your life introduces an idea that actually the dominant society is not introducing. Your life is your money, you know. So ultimately, it's not a dichotomy, of course, because there are people who spend their life doing things that bring in money, but it's a completely sincere, authentic expression of themselves. I'm not dissing, like, if you're making money, then you're not really doing a real life. So, Rock, I want to talk about this idea of money not being the whole story that Vicky was talking about. I listened to your Goalcast again this morning, and you talk about being an adult, being married, having a child, almost being a millionaire, having your own business, and you describe going home to take care of your ailing father. Why is that not the end of the story? Why is that the beginning of your story? Well, I think if we look at the psychology of wealth, we're trained very poorly on what money means. Money is stored energy and it is the ability to add value in the marketplace. Once you establish what you can do, it's either what you love to do or it's what you can do well. I'm very good at real estate. I have multiple real estate offices. I no longer love it, but it makes me very good money with very little effort. There are things I'm passionate about, like coaching and training and helping people become what I call fulfillionaires, not millionaires, fulfillionaires, where they actually have a healthy, full life, where they live long and strong, where they focus on taking care of their body, and they also focus on their relationships, but having the ability to be wealthy. So people talk about balance. I don't believe in balance. I believe in counterbalance or being out of balance purposefully and intentionally. So maybe for three months or six months, you go and you prepare for an Ironman. Or maybe for three months, you, you dig in and you spend the summer with your family and your kids and you coach soccer. Or maybe for six months or for three years, you build a business but that business now gives you a lifestyle you can live forever. So I go into the different areas, weed the garden, get it into a place where I can just dip in once in a while, kind of like a plane at cruise control. And then each garden gets elevated as I go, raising the standards based on mostly the education I didn't get in school that I get from really great people like you guys that I can now apply into my life and be held accountable so that I succeed. Let's go back to that moment in time in your life. As I was saying, you, you, know, you were married, you had a kid, you had almost a million dollars, you had a business, but your life was not in balance. What was missing? Well, to be honest, the love of my father, the recognition of my father saying he was proud of me and I had a golden opportunity. What I thought was to take care of him while he was ailing with cancer and I was going to hear those famous words, I'm proud of you. And after two years of taking care of him, I still didn't get that. And what the cause for me was I doubled down, I went into business and I still worked my ass off to prove to my father I was going to be successful and that even he'd be looking down for me in the heavens, that he would be proud of me. During that process is I spent less time taking care of my relationships. I spent less time taking care of my health. And that's when I came to the realization that you don't have to do one in lieu of the other You can do them all and that I do a better job of that today and that's what I teach because I think that it's not taught. We are taught, I think, like we were discussing earlier, is that people think you need to become wealthy. You need to master your finances. And it's, by the way, it's less emotional to go to work and win at work than to be at home. And most men, as an example, have difficulty when the kids are less than two years old. They'd rather be at the office and changing diapers and going goo goo gaga. So they win at work and they don't win at home. So where do they go? They go to work. It's more measurable. It's more tangible. 
They have a nice car, the nice suit. They get noticed and they get significant. So we could go into the psychology, but we feel significant and certain when we're wealthy. So Jim, let's talk about winning at work. I mean, most physicians make a lot of money. Why aren't they wealthy? Why are physicians labeled as particularly bad businessmen? Because they're artists. (laughs) That's a good analogy. You know, there's a lot of truth to that. Just like an artist or an entertainer or an athlete makes money based on some special talent they have or some special knowledge base or skill they have, just like that, a physician makes their money the same way. Instead of a businessman who has to master how to handle money, that has to master taking care of money coming in and money going out before they ever get a physician-like income, it's just kind of dumped on a dock when they come out of residency and they, they don't have any training or any understanding or, or anything to manage that. I mean, I'm just, I'm not talking even about mindset. I'm just talking about nuts and bolts, how to budget, what a retirement account is, you know, how to invest, nuts and bolts, finance stuff. They don't have it. And so I think that's what keeps them from really achieving wealth, at least in a financial sense. And I think when you talk about wealth, you got to start with the definition and however you want to define it. And obviously there's lots of ways, but if we're going to talk about wealth, we got to at least put a definition down of which type of wealth we're talking about. Yeah, I think the two types of wealth we focus on are vertical and horizontal. And doctors are really good at vertical. They can make three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollars a year. They do what they love. They meet their human needs of being significant and needed and wanted and making these key decisions and saving lives. So it juices them. But what they do with their money is they have no training in passive or what I call horizontal income. While they're lying down or while they're doing something else, they don't know how to put their money to work. They don't know how to budget. They don't know how to invest. And they're somewhat forced to keep up with the Joneses and pull up with their Porsche to the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. So they're not intelligent in most cases with their money, not because they don't want to, but they just haven't had the education. So the thing that we focus on for financial freedom is how do you put your money to work for you? Do you invest in real estate? Do you invest in Airbnb? Do you write a book? Do you create an online product? And then that continually makes you money over and over and over again. And and the doctors and people that are making high income like that, they need help with that because they need to be educated. I have a quick question for Jim and for Rock and also for you, Doc G. I was at a restaurant a couple of days ago and I I live right by a hospital here in New York City and there was a physician, they were still wearing all of their garb and they'd literally fallen asleep on the table at the restaurant. I think it was 2 p.m. on a Friday and, you know, I watched them and they finally woke up and I listened to this conversation that they had and, you know, they'd been on for multiple days, they were super tired. You know, when I was, you know, had my own company and had all my employees and was in the grind, there was so much constriction in my life that I wasn't even realizing what I was missing out on because I didn't have the time and space for new things to even show up. And my question for you would be, true wealth for me is being able to wake up every day and not knowing what will happen or who I will meet or where I will go. That is true freedom to the extent that doctors or medical professionals, they just all seem so tired. Can you truly have a wealthy life with that exhausting of a career? You know, I mean, I'm running a a large business now or small business rather. I've got four or five people working for me. I do some work on it most days, sometimes dawn to dusk. And it's way easier than residency ever was, you know? (laughs) I mean, it's amazing how much easier it is to make money online than it is as a physician. It's hard work. It's hard to be a doc. You spend your entire 20s not making any money. In fact, you're usually paying huge sums of money and you are the low man on the totem pole for pretty much the whole time. 
And it's not pleasant. You're having to make difficult decisions that if you screw up, people get hurt, they die. It's stressful, hard work. And that's why, you know, as I do my podcast, I always thank my listeners because I know most of them are working harder than I am. It is hard work. A couple of years ago, in fact, one of the major motivations for me to become financially wealthy, to become maybe not completely financially independent, but certainly in a better position than I was, was to stop working night shifts. I'm an emergency doc. Grant, you talk about going to, you know, not knowing what you're going to do during the day. That is my life. I walk in the hospital and whatever comes in the doors, that's what I'm taking care of that day. So if you like that, you ought to take a look at, at emergency. You know, you never really know if you're going to be extracting a rectal foreign body or, or taking care of, you know, a, a child that's terribly ill. It just varies by the day. I think my case yesterday was delusional parasitosis, which look up if you want to hear about a, a, an interesting diagnosis. But the truth of the matter is, it's difficult to be a doc. And it was difficult for me to stay up all night. At four o'clock in the morning, I did not feel well. You know, whether I was wealthy or not, I was not well. It was not good for me. They've done studies on staying up all night. It's the equivalent of a cardiac risk factor. It's like having high blood pressure or high cholesterol or diabetes. That's how hard it is on your heart. It's not good for you to stay up all night. And so that was a major motivation for me to make the white coat investor successful was to make sure that I wouldn't have to work nights again. And so a couple of years ago, I basically bought my way out of nights. My partners work my nights for me because I pay them to. So Rock, let's talk about this a little bit. I mean, doctors and other high earners, these are really, really smart groups of people. I mean, is understanding your own finances that difficult? Why aren't these groups latching on to it more and taking more control? Well, Aristotle said we are what we repeatedly do, and we're not repeatedly learning about money in school. We're learning about everything else but money. We're learning about history and geography and math, et cetera. And then we spend the rest of our life trying to make money. But I always look at things through the six human needs. I learned this from Tony Robbins. And the human needs are basically certainty, uncertainty, love and connection, significance, growth and contribution. Think about those six needs. How does a doctor evaluate themselves on that? Do they feel certain that they're going to go and work and make a difference? Pretty much 100%, I'm sure. Is there variety? Well, Jim just said it. There's all kinds of variety. He doesn't know what he's going to get. That's exciting. It makes you feel alive. Does he get connection? He connects with his colleagues, with other people. He's the man of the hour. Is there significance? He feels needed, wanted, important, and has power. As soon as you have three of the six human needs, it's an addiction. Forget the fact that there's growth and contribution. He's growing all the time and he's contributing all the time. So now he's meeting all six human needs on practically level 10. He's addicted to going in there and feeling fully freaking alive. Does the person at Starbucks pouring coffee say that? No. Does the person that's a receptionist say that? Probably not. She might get certainty, but not significance. So doctors have paid a big price, in my opinion, to get those six human needs met, and they keep on like a drug going back to get them. What they fail to do is create any sort of other plan with the money they make because they're so busy getting your needs met as an artist doing what they do, being met and all the significance and the parking lots or reserve spot near the front entrance, whatever, which is super cool. And anybody that spends 10 years of their life working their ass off to get that should get that. So I look at it that way. And for me, I didn't grow up like that. I was a farm boy. I got my significance out of solving problems. 
I'm really good at solving problems and therefore I have 37 different streams of income. I've authored three books. I've got multiple businesses. I don't have the education of a doctor, but I'm really good at solving problems. And that's how I met my human needs. And that's, you know, when you look at it from that perspective, you understand why people do what they do. So Vicky, let's broaden this out a little bit from doctors to larger society. Back in the 1990s, when you came out with the book, Your Money and Your Life, you estimated that between the TV shows and the book, etc., you had probably an audience of 50% of the United States. How do you think that affected people? I know that there was a point in your life in the 2000s where you became burned out from this journey. Did you feel like it connected with society as a whole? It's a great question, and I'm not going to answer it exactly. So Joe and I were working on a theory, and I want to go back to, and this is a story I've told before, but I'll tell it this time. For me, the penny dropped in 1989 when I went to a conference called the Globescope Pacific Assembly, which was the first U.S. hearing on this idea of sustainable development, which has now been co-opted fully by the corporations. But at that time, it was a revolutionary idea of a recognition globally that we cannot continue economic expansion on a finite planet. And we're heading into a collision and we need to get ahead of the curve. You know, the United Nations hosted throughout the 1990s, they hosted conferences on this issue. And we took it seriously then. And so it was at that conference where I realized this program that we'd been teaching for 10 years as a seminar that Joe Dominguez had developed, that basically the byproduct of paying attention to whether the money you're spending is buying you a life you love, the byproduct of engaging in that question day in, day out, you know, purchase by purchase, produces a reduction in consumption by about 20 to 25% because we studied people. And almost everybody said either that they didn't know what they used to spend the money on or that they would never go back to the way of life that they'd had. So, I'm sitting in this conference knowing that the exact amount that we are overspending as a planet, we're in a condition called overshoot. We are spending more of the natural resources of the planet annually than the planet can regenerate. We went into overshoot in 1986, in the early 80s. So basically, we're living on fumes collectively. And now that the rent is due, you know, basically, we're seeing it with climate change. So I saw that back then. And I thought, my God, because we were 20% into overshoot. We're sitting on the solution to the biggest problem on the planet. That was my motivator. And so we also understood something called the Everett Rogers Innovation Diffusion Curve, which, you know, it was the idea that, you know, you can, you know, you get 5% of innovators and then you can, that those 5% of the people, if you can get a, another 15%, if you can get 20% of the population buying into an idea, that it will become unstoppable. So we were calculating. It wasn't for ego or anything. We were simply tallying up our 20% of the population because our goal was by the year 2000, this whole habit of overconsumption in North America, that we would get off that drug. And so the burnout was, I wasn't burned out. I was on a mission. I would like do three interviews. We didn't have podcasts back then. Back in the day, that I would do all these phone interviews all day long. I traveled the world. And I was doing it for this big purpose to stop overconsumption, to have us live well within the means of the earth. Frankly, it was an utter failure, but it was a great run. But, you know, we failed. Ahead, I'm not sure I would say we failed so much as we have not yet succeeded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think your mantle if you set it down at all, has been picked up by 10 times as many people who yes, are carrying yes, it forward. Yes. So, oh, sure. so, I mean, but there's no doubt that each of us in this room 
has sufficient wealth that we can consume way more than our share of the planet's resources. In a lot of respects, the planet is less wealthy than each of us are. So Peter Diamantis wrote a book called Abundance, and his theory is that there's plenty of resources on the planet. And I would challenge what you guys are talking about and say, I think that there's an abundance. I think that what we lack is creativity. And most people that are not wealthy are not creative. They have a story in their mind that says, you know, I don't have enough mouth. I don't have enough education. I don't have enough time, et cetera. And it's all bullshit as far as I'm concerned. The biggest wealth you can have is the belief that you can find a way. And successful people always find a way. And there is there's wind power, solar power. Soon there's going to, we don't even need fossil fuel. So I don't know what we are overusing or what we're borrowing from the future. But I would challenge that. I think that if we're creative people, I think there's plenty out there. So if you actually take all of the money in the entire world and you divide it by the number of people, the average person would have about $13,000 net worth to their name. So I had this theory when I was writing the book that everyone could be a millionaire in the entire world. But in reality, unless we just produce a massive amount of new money, creating something from nothing that's backed by nothing, in a sense, spreading it equally across the world, we would all barely be able to actually survive. And I think that that becomes the question of all of us truly are wealthy and can sit here and talk while the average person in this world lives on less than $2 a day and is extremely impoverished. So when things hit the fan, this idea of abundance, just like wealth, I believe will be concentrated you know, and it's a real privilege to be able, to your point, Rock, to be able to be creative. To be creative requires some form of security. And I think most people are just at the point where they're just seeking security and don't even have that luxury. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think security is a currency that most people go for and they do things that they think they can make money at instead of things that they're passionate or that fulfill them. But if you look at some of the people in the poorest nations, they're actually the happiest. They're the most free and content. Most of us spend a lifetime trying to make money and then we worry about losing it. And so psychology is actually the greatest currency, if you will. Your ability to frame things, your ability to see things in a way that you feel grateful and optimistic and wonderful. I played golf today. I had some bad holes. I played golf and played some good holes and I try to be really grateful for the good ones and learn from the bad ones. But at the same time, I'm out there playing golf on a beautiful day when other people can, you know, 50% of the population doesn't even have running water. But I think we'll never get to a place where we can distribute the wealth equally. It's not going to happen. The hierarchy will always be there. It could be a little bit better distributed. I would agree with that. But ultimately, education becomes a currency that's important too. And for me, what I try to do is educate people on how they can you know, my father taught me, he goes, look, if you want to contribute to, I'm from Canada, you want to contribute to the healthcare system in Canada, don't be one of the sick. If you want to contribute to the economy, don't be one of the broke. So it starts with us first putting on the oxygen mask ourselves and then putting it on our children and then putting it on the people around us. And if we do that, then we're going to make a difference long-term and there will be an opportunity for people to be financially free. I do believe that. You know, I want to go back a bit and defend what Rock said initially. Not that many centuries ago, everybody was poor. You know, William Bernstein wrote a book called The Birth of Plenty. And basically, 200 years ago, all of a sudden we had plenty. Before then, nobody had plenty. You know, maybe the kings had plenty, but that was right. it. Nobody had plenty. And 
through creativity, through economic advancement, we've created this world where a significant portion of us at least have plenty. And this is a dramatic change in the history of the world. And it was not that long ago when we were worried that the planet was going to run out of food. You know, we had 60 or 80% of the population who was engaged in growing and creating food. And we've had all these advances in how to make food and have become so good at it that there's plenty of food on this planet. The issue with food is not that there's not enough, it's that it's maldistributed. And in a lot of ways, all of our resources, we can look at that. Through creativity, I'm confident that we can live, all these seven or eight billion or however many are on the planet right now, can live in a sustainable way. But that is not the way we're living right now. And the problem is we have all these impoverished people in many sectors of the world whose lives are dramatically improving, whose goal in many ways, many times, is to live a life similar to the way people in the Western nations are. And our planet cannot afford that. And those of us who are already living that way, maybe we need to take the example and show that there are ways to live and be wealthy and have a nice life and yet not be churning through more than our share of the planet's resources. So how many of us grew up being taught that we should have a milk mustache and that it was important to get your dairy, right? I just read today that dairy sales went down $1.1 billion in 2018. Most of us or many of us are now going to Starbucks and ordering a, a, a latte with almond milk or soy milk and cashew milk, etc. So I believe in 10 years from now, eating meat and eating chicken is going to be dramatically like you're going to be looked at if you do that, like somebody that is smoking cigarettes today. And that is going to contribute dramatically to the way that we're able to feed and sustain the population because we know that it takes, I don't know, 11,000 gallons of water to produce one pound of meat or something crazy like that. So there's going to be a shift and I'm excited about what we can create together educate people, get people with some passive income. They can only a few apartment buildings, what have you. Airbnb has changed the way the world is working. I have a community where many people have left their job and they're now managing Airbnb and they're making as much money as they were as a CPA. So the world's changing. It's up to the creativity of all of us and we can have massive amounts of abundance. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. 
All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. I'll just start with Airbnb, okay? So I've had an Airbnb in my house. I believe that people, you know, like me, little retired ladies who have a guest room, lovely thing to do to, you know, get some extra income. However, in my community and in many communities, people are coming, investors are coming in from the outside. They're buying up real estate. They have plenty of money. We have almost no rentals anymore for working class people. So the people, the wealthy people are in the community expecting that there's going to be people who are going to do their yards and their house cleaning and stuff like that. We have restaurants that can't even staff up because the working class people cannot afford to live in our community before anymore because people are taking houses off the market and putting them into Airbnbs, houses that were the rental properties where, you know, so we have a community that is an I basically live in the town that was in the 70s. It was like a hippie haven. And now it's a gated community of old white people, fundamentally, because of the dynamics of that. So there's a remainder. If you're an ethical person, there's always a remainder someplace else out there where you think about, okay, how is this impacting out beyond my circle of personal influence? I'm not saying people shouldn't do it, but it is just not like, you know, privileged people can buy up real estate and turn it into Airbnbs and they can go into communities like Nestle's can go in and buy, you know, town's water supply. Money does that. There's an ethical element to this that isn't being factored in. Talking about abundance, I would agree that there's incredible abundance. It's all spiritual. Love's abundant. Love is, you know, that there's like endless supply of love. But at a material level on this planet, there's a limit. And we act as though the economy that the planet, the resources of the planet are sort of like this cornucopia. We'll just go over there to the planet. We'll just grab something. We're going to use that. 
So we act as though the planet is a subset of the economy, that the economy will always expand. And that's how we have been able to tell ourselves a story that there can always be an expanding pie. There can always be more for everybody because look, it's already happened. And you don't realize that you're using something up. Overshoot Day, the ecological footprint has been publishing what the day is by when it's like tax day, you know, like how long into your year are you working just to pay for your taxes? Overshoot Day now is in August. So, you know, basically it's saying, basically we are using 50% more of the planet's resources than can be regenerated. We're drawing down the ecological bank. And it's not like it's free energy, you know, solar, wind, that's all beautiful. We're not going to have the life that we have now, those capacities. So I also want to say that the oceans are acidifying. The oceans are full of plastic. They're finding plastic at the bottom of the ocean. We have resources that we don't even know. We live in a natural world that is basically becoming a garbage dump. And so we can't judge the prosperity that this little golden age that I've been alive, we can't judge this prosperity as predictive of the future. So I just wanted to presence those things. Let me see if I can tie this a little together, Grant, and tell me what this sounds like to you. It sounds like we have a population here in the United States that has abundance, and yet we also have a scarcity of resources. And it sounds like we in this population who feel like we don't have abundance are actually using more of these resources because we don't feel wealthy. Yeah, I could agree with that. I'm going to make a little bit of a left turn here and talk about my problem with the financial independence movement, which is generally, you know, I met over 10,000 people in the FI community. It's growing. I view this as a really bright spot where if you can, all the work that Vicky started, if you can escape wage slavery, you're going to have more time and space to hopefully not just spend it making more money, but hopefully spend it helping others. And one of the challenges is money, once you figure out how to earn it, actually becomes pretty easy to make. And I spend a lot of time meeting people who they've figured out the game and then they sit back and pat themselves on the back and they have 37 streams of income and then sit back and reap rewards ultimately through the exploitation of someone whether it's a website and someone's clicking and you're getting paid by a credit card company who the only way credit card companies make money is because people go into debt and they pay late fees. And so being an affiliate for those companies, you're ultimately profiting from people who can't afford those late fees. And what ends up happening is making money is actually not very hard at all. What's more difficult is getting to a point in your life where you finally draw a line and you say, okay, I've become that person. I've mastered that. Now, how can I share that abundance with others? And that's one of the things that I don't see much in this community is this simple idea of reaching a point where it's abundance for all. It's just a lot of people that end up feeling really creative and like they found the ultimate life hack, as other people say. And in it in and of itself, making money is not in and of itself sufficient. It's never been easier in history to make money online. We all know that. You know, you can write a blog post and it's a proverbial ATM, but it's like, so what? But are you making money online right now? Oh, absolutely. What do you sell? Courses, you know, there's display, advertising, money talk cards. I'm actually not currently selling a course right now. And all the money that I've made on my website, I've actually redistributed to my writers. So actually, I could say that I'm currently not making money online this month. <laughs> So again, I'm going to be the bad guy in this call. I don't think it's easy to make money online. 
And if it, if it is, I'm open to being coached by any one of you that's doing it because I've got a whole team and we make some money online, but I think a lot of people talk a big game about how easy it is and click funnels and all that. But with the algorithms that change and the competition, I don't think it's that easy. I think it's glorified and the people that are making money are the people telling people how to make money online. So to your point, the 37 streams of income, if you were to research, my belief system around money is that money is basically comes to you when you add value in the marketplace. And I believe that people want to belong and they want to matter. And if you help people belong and matter, then you can help them grow their ability to make a difference in the world. So all the courses that I sell and all the things that I do are around helping people become fulfillionaires. And that means that they get fulfilled while they're doing what they're doing. They become a better person. They become a better version of themselves. They spend some time becoming aware of their habits or addictions and they work through them. So I think that there are a lot of people that, yes, do want to just have the money machine going, but that's never been my take. If it was, I'd probably be a lot wealthier than I am but I'm a little bit old school. I want to really, what cranks my shaft is when people actually, you know, become a better version of themselves. And I get a, an email or a text and somebody says, hey, you know what? I finally got my ass in the gym, lost those 20 pounds. Or I'm spending more time with the kids and I'm able to coach my kids soccer because I was able to write this book finally about something, blah, blah, blah. So I hear what you're saying, but I also think that we have to adapt the world's changing so quickly. My mom's 83 years old and she Airbnbs a room in her house that I bought for her and she gets $62.50 a night and she bought herself a new Honda Civic and she can now go to the, the corner store and in style. She's adapted. And I don't agree with all this stuff. I don't even like social media, quite frankly. It's a pain in the ass, but it's a necessary evil for what I do. But if we don't adapt, you die and we're all adapting. You know, I think it's noteworthy to really point out that yes, some of the wealth that our world has accumulated, that we as individuals have accumulated in the last 200 years, comes from directly raping the resources of the planet. But not all of it. A lot of it is the creativity, the hard work, the mental energy, the life energy that we have put into it. In reality, in a lot of ways, that's what money is, is life energy that you put it in and you get money out. And that portion of it, Vicky, is totally sustainable and can grow and can boost the economy. What we have to do, though, is figure out a way to make our economy more dependent on that and less dependent on raping the resources of the planet and filling the Pacific with islands of plastic. Yeah, it's called dematerialization. There's a whole school in the economy about, you know, basically dematerializing pleasure, prosperity, finding higher order values, higher order ways to achieve the same things of happiness and connectivity. I'd like to, if I could, just throw in something else because I think we're kind of going off in one direction, which is when I updated Your Money or Your Life, I wanted to talk about my communitarian values and ecological values in addition to the financial values. And what I said was that I think that money is too thin a stock on to which to base your wealth. It's just, it's a fragile, money is a fragile foundation for wealth if that's the only pillar you have. So I came up with a little mnemonic device which doesn't cover the waterfront, but I called it the ABCs of wealth. And the A is your abilities, the things you can do for yourself that you don't have to pay other people to do, your competency, or things that you could do for others and you could earn some money. So basically your abilities, the more capable you are 
in a diverse number of ways, the more wealthy you are, because you are not dependent on money as the only way to buy your way through life. I spent six years of my life, this is not a heroic tale, it's just sort of an accidental fact that I spent six years of my life living on $100 a month, and I welcomed it because the game was, don't throw money at anything and see what happens. You know, so I learned to grow food and, and hunt and butcher and build. And I learned how to, you know, I built a motorcycle from a box of parts. I learned the, the basic survivalist stuff. I'm so glad. But that's just one thing is that I think that what happens is when you're so bought into the money economy that you basically believe that I have a set of talents and abilities and I will sell those in the marketplace and everything else gets taken care of. I don't even have to think about it. So that's one thing is the abilities. The B is belonging. The B is belonging is sort of like who will show up for you, you know, when you need something. And I don't have a blood family. I don't have like one of these big blood families that all take care of each other. So I've had to build my networks of people who will really show up. And I had one of my examples is that I had hip surgery a couple of years ago and I had friends organized meals, care, laundry, everything for all the weeks that I was at home. So basically, you know, if you're fragile, you're actually in terms of wealth, you're fragile if you do not have people who will show up for you when you need them, that you can call up and say, it's three o'clock in the morning and I'm having trouble. And then the third one is community. And community for me is, a lot of it is about where you live. And people are quite like disconnected, like do arbitrage. For me, my community of place, and I definitely, I am a student of climate change. I am an activist on climate change. I study it. And I'll tell you, my, where I live, I think, is a lifeboat. And not everybody is sitting in a lifeboat. A lot of people are not sitting in lifeboats. So community, part of it is the actual location on the planet in this historical moment. It's the people who know you, where, you know, I walk in the bank and the, my face is my bond. People know me. That can be obnoxious, but it's also the talk about a safety net. I know the forests. I know where to forage. I know the farmers. Community, if all money goes away, people where I live know that we will create trading systems easily. It's not like we have an alternative currency because we have settled our life on a different foundation. So Grant, if what Vicky says is right, and I fully believe in it, about the ABCs of wealth and how they connect to actual money, why is every single one of us on this call trying to teach wealth by teaching finances? Yeah, I think money is, I mean, it's something because people haven't learned it in school. A lot of people like to pay attention to the counter narrative. So when someone feels stuck in their life, you know, if they can save up six months of expenses, then they can say, forget the boss or, you know, money itself has always been sort of linked to this idea of power. The problem is because of so many of the things that we've talked about today, you know, unconsciously, consciously, money itself is something that often people are afraid of or fear because of how they grew up or, you know, ultimately what they've been sold, even financial literacy, the fact that most programs are underwritten by the largest financial institutions and perpetuators of debt in this entire country. But at the end of the day, for me, a lot of it comes down to what's going to be the measure stick of your life. And that if you inherit someone else's measure stick, you know, you're always going to feel less than in some way whether that's a measure stick from your parents, whether that's a measure stick from your community or our culture or someone you're comparing yourself to, you know, you're not going to feel like you're enough in some sense. And so money, it's simply a reflection of who you are. And when you look at 
areas of your life and you feel really stuck, often money has to likely do with a few of those reasons that you're stuck. And so I've always believed it as a pathway to freedom in the sense that I could simply, you know, if you feel stuck in a relationship or a job or in your town or where you're at in life, I can think of very few things other than saving up fifty to $100,000 that can ultimately give you choice and options to escape. But at the end of the day, I think all of what we're doing is you got to teach people a little bit of the tactics, but we all know that the tactics in and of themselves are not sufficient. People have to believe for themselves in order to make this happen, and they need community support, and they need to feel like they belong. And as Rock so eloquently articulated, all of these sort of needs that we have need to be met in order for there to be at least a belief that any of this is possible. So I think we're, as Vicky has always said, we're in the life business. You know, we're not in the money business. I think it's easy to say money doesn't matter when you have plenty of money, right? All of us, you know, Vicky lived for $100 a month or whatever it was for a long time. You know, I donated plasma for food money in college. You know, most of us have had a segment of our life when we didn't have much money. And I'll tell you what, money is like oxygen. If you have enough of it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect your life a bit. If you don't have enough, you can't think about anything else and you'll right. do anything to get more of it. And right. so I think it's easy to get on our high horse when you know, you're already financially independent and sit there and say, you know, money doesn't matter. Money isn't everything. I'm trying to be fulfilled, et cetera. Well, guess what? You know what? If there's nothing in the bank account and your kid is hungry or you need to go down to the, you know, see the doctor or, you know, the car just dropped its transmission. You know what? Money matters a lot. And teaching people to have a little bit more of that money really can improve their lives. I just want to say I agree with that 100%. And that's, that's a justice issue. That's not a financial issue. It's the recognition that there are plenty of people who are completely smart, empowered, amazing people, full of gems that they could give to this world, who are impoverished and they're never going to get that out of themselves. And the world is never going to get those gifts. So I think it's really important to like presence that. I appreciate that, the justice part of it. I think we all agree, you know, and Vicki and Grant have said this a few times, is that as a group of people, we want to belong and we want to matter. And we're looking for those places. But how many of us went to our guidance counselor in high school and actually followed the career that was suggested to us? Almost nobody, because we didn't know what we wanted. So we, we traipse out into the world with the little limited training that we have around money and wealth and career and choice and all that. We stumble across something. And if we're not too careful, we buy ourselves a car, we maybe get an apartment, we maybe get a girl pregnant, whatever. And before we know it, we're trapped. And now we have to pay the bills with the limited situation that we have. My father was very good at making money, but he was a terrible money manager. He bought real estate when it was high, sold when it was low. He bought expensive suits and he bought expensive trainings online and he, he had expensive cars, but he was not investing his money. My mother never made more than $20,000 a year, but she was incredibly frugal with her money. We learn from the people around us. And they're usually unconscious beliefs such as money doesn't grow on. We all know how that goes. Money is the root of, we all know how that goes. And these are deep embedded situations. When we witness our parents arguing over money, we think money might be bad. When we see our parents mismanaging it, we think that we don't have to manage it. So the root to me is around educating people how to manage their money. Where do you want to make it? 
Are you willing to defer what you want now for what you really want later? And when you start to give people those skills, they can live below their means, they can save some money, start to invest it, and then they can have some some form of financial freedom down the road. But that requires personal development. They have to now be willing to resist the urge to do what is normal but not natural. What do I mean? Friday night. You work hard all week at a job you don't like. What do you do? You spend everything you earned on a nice bottle of wine and a good dinner with your friends. Why? Because you want to belong and you want to matter, but you don't give yourself anything for your future. So for me, it's about enlightening people as to your behavior. What choices are you making today, making tomorrow that are not serving the future you? And when you can educate people around that and you can do it consistently and put them into an ecosystem where they're supported, challenged, and encouraged and they're held accountable, you create transformation. I've created 41 millionaires in the last two and a half years using that system. And the reason to Grant's point, or maybe it was Jim, is that when you don't have any money, that's just about all you think about. So even though my goal is to help people be more spiritual, Vicky, I start by handling their money first because that's the oxygen. And when I get the oxygen mask on them and I give them a little bit of stability and security, then we can start talking about meditation, about breathing exercises, about going to India for a week in a, in a retreat. But before that, they don't hear me. That's like talking to somebody who goes to McDonald's three times a week and saying, you need to eat raw. No, you get them to give up the diet Coke for water. That's the first step. That's kind of how I look at it. So here's my problem with personal development work and podcasts, which I know I'm very much a part of and I'm self-critical in this sense. I know millionaire by 30, $2 in my bank account. I also didn't sleep for five years, gained 55 pounds, lost most of my friends and lost my entire late 20s. So all of those things, you know, someone invited me to their mastermind community. I was chatting with them. It was a big dad's group. And one of the guys asked me and he said, how can I launch my own company? I, you know, I listened to Tim Ferriss and all these podcasts and I really want to be an entrepreneur. And I hear that entrepreneurship is a pathway to wealth, but you know, I don't have coding skills and I'm not good at selling as my friends. And, you know, I really can't be all of those things. And I think one of the things that a lot of personal development misses is that, uh, you know, and Vicky taught me most of this is that, you know, there are limits to all of our potential and all of our capacity. We're not unlimited. Uh, no matter what I do in my life, I'm not going to be 6'4 and look like I'm on an ER television show like White Coat Investor over there. I'm not going to run a four-minute mile no matter. Maybe I could. Okay, maybe I could do that in like five years. But at the end of the day, the limits themselves of who we are as being human, the bookends of our life between birth and death are in a sense the ability that give us the opportunity to be truly alive and full. And I wish, at least in the personal development space, there was more, you know, you are already enough. And just because you can't be this or that or a millionaire, or you don't have that drive, or you don't want to side hustle every Saturday morning, maybe you already have all of those things that you seek. And money itself is just another thing to chase. Because in our life, we're conditioned I was conditioned from my mother. It sounds like rock. You were conditioned from your father in some sense to always chase something. And true wealth for me only showed up when I realized that I was always going to be chasing something. And once I realized that I already had everything that I wanted, that is when I truly felt free. 
and felt wealthy. I think it's a great statement. And I think Brittany Brown does some great work around that. Uh, you know, we all, you know, she says we start the day, you know, I didn't get enough sleep. There's not enough coffee. There's not enough gas in the car, et cetera, et cetera. Well, let's face it. We all fear that we're not enough. And a lot of us use our pedigree or our wealth and success and or our bodies to fill that gap in. And if there is a way to make people feel like they're enough while growing, because I think that if you're not growing, you're dying. I think we are meant to grow, but you can also feel like be satisfied or content with where you are while still hungering to be the best version of yourself. I'm all for that, Grant. Yeah, I want to come back around to what you said about we're all, all of us are teaching people how to build wealth. And I was sort of dismissive. I don't think that that's what I'm doing anymore. And I just wanted to go back to your money, your life, because basically what we're teaching is enoughness. We're not teaching wealth. We're teaching sufficiency. And part of it is, Grant is saying, is the ability to recognize that you have what you want. And, you know, want what you have, don't want what you don't have, and know the difference. And we had a formula for it. It was like, basically, when you see that money is the life energy, money is life energy, it's the life energy that you invested in getting it. And that, you know, there's a lot of cost to making money. When you start to say, my real hourly wage, what I'm trading an hour of my life for is X, usually about a quarter of your nominal wage. And then you go and spend X on Y. You know, it's very basic. Did I get sufficient meaning, purpose, and pleasure out of why commensurate with that hour of my life I invested. And so basically what people start to do is make their life the senior element and their money the junior element. Is That is the switch that we were trying to induce. That So basically your wealth is your character, your wealth is your connections, your wealth is your competencies, your wealth is your inner peace, these are your wealth and it's not in contradiction to money. You have enough money so you can liberate your time for what matters more than money. And I think that we're losing, I would just say for me personally, I think in the last, since I've been sort of conscious and, and out there in the world, that we're losing a lot of social glue. Just being able to talk about the common good, doing something for the common good. There is now in this society a little bit what's in it for me. It's a little bit performative. Like, you know, I volunteered at the XYZ. You know, there isn't a sense of commonality of that we're in this, in something together, all of us, and that we're all in a common project called making this world a better place, not individual volunteering, a common project. And I, I keep talking to people like, I just keep doing this, like we're losing the glue. You know, we're just, and that to me is the ultimate wealth. When you have a sane society, that's the foundation of wealth. I think right now in this world, whether it's United States or, or Brazil or, you know, UK, this society, we're being led by people who are collectively traumatizing us. So we have lost a foundation for wealth. You know, the Western world, that's where I'm paying attention trying to draw people into this recognition of the common good and an understanding it's that no man is an island, we're all connected, not we're all connected in some sort of la-la kumbaya way, but no, we really are. My destiny is linked to your destiny. So I just want to go back to that. If I'm teaching anything about wealth, I'm teaching about the non-material aspects, the social aspects environmental aspects of what the wealth is, the foundational wealth on which we can build our lives. 
Uh, that was a perfect transition, Vicky, to the question that I was going to ask to wrap this whole thing up, which was, what is wealth? And you called it enoughness. So I'd like to give the, the rest of our panelists the chance to define their definition of wealth and how they should teach it. I think wealth to me is defining what success means for your life and not taking someone else's definition. And it might take me my entire life to figure out what that means. And all I know is that I'm getting a little bit closer and that's pretty much all that we can ask for. And what do you share with the audience members listening to this? Project your experiences onto them and what would you take from this conversation that we've had, which has been coming from many different facets and has gone to the next level over most conversations I've heard? What do you share? What you give to the audience right now? All I'd like to give to the audience is realize that so many of those things that you likely think that money will give you, it probably won't give you those things. And it's a great distraction and it might be a great distraction for the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years, hopefully not for the rest of your life. And I encourage you to stop chasing or in some cases stop running away from that thing that really matters, which is going deeper into who you are. Because the work of going inside as opposed to outside is where the richness is. And until you're at peace with who you are in the world and you're able to let go of a lot of those job titles and net worth factors and spreadsheets and accolades, until you're able to let go of some of that, it's always going to be a race. And so realize what you already have because it's already inside of you. Wonderful. Thank you for that. That was very well done. With, with very little warning, I just dropped it on you like that. Jim's had a few seconds to think about it. What are your thoughts? You know, I think enoughness is a great definition of wealth. As I mentioned with the oxygen analogy earlier, more than enough doesn't do you any good. It certainly isn't going to make you any happier. And so it's fine to stop chasing there. But I think it's also important to remember that payment, a salary, is only one reason we go to work, only one reason we do work. And this became very evident to me as I reached financial independence. And I cut back on some of the things I didn't like at work. I cut the number of shifts I was working each month. I dropped the night shifts, but I kept practicing. This is not a wise financial decision for me. I should be spending that time working on the white coat investor if I wanted to make more money. But I've kept practicing medicine. And the reason why is because it provides something for me, which I cannot get in any other way. I cannot purchase it with money. And yet I still get paid to do it. It's the opportunity to serve other people that builds a richness in my life that you know you really can't know if you really love your work and would do it even if you didn't need the money until you no longer need the money. And then you can do it and realize that you really were doing it for the right reason in the end. And uh, I think that's gratifying to be able to find a job that you don't feel like you need to retire from, that you don't feel like you need a vacation from, that you feel like you're making a difference in the world no matter what it's paying you. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. Rock, your thoughts on the question? I think that it's a formula. And I think that you could say your wealth is your health. And yet the easiest thing we all know is that you can look up any way to be healthy online and they'll say, consume less calories than you put out, exercise, eat a good meal, and you'll be healthy. Yet 65% of North Americans are obese. So it's not the access to the education. It's the access to the ability to defer what you want in the moment. So if I'm going to say that what is wealth is your ability to be conscious 
of your addictions, your desires, what's being hanged as a carrot in front of you by society. The poor kids grow up with coke in school, with credit cards and car payments before they're practically in college. They go to college, they learn how to drink. They don't really learn things that are useful. The four years of education that they get by the time they're out, four years from today, half of that information will be obsolete. Their ability to learn to learn, their ability to defer what they think is an urge right now to defer that, to do something that is disciplined and that creates value in the marketplace, to me, that's wealth. Drop me in any city and any place on the planet with a hundred bucks in my pocket and I will find a way to be wealthy, financially, healthy, and with the community because I have the ability to defer that urge in the moment and create value by being creative. So, Rock, thank you for your contribution. We'd like to give you a chance to let us know where to find you and share with the audience what is up next for you. Yeah, they can find me at rock at rockthomas.com. They'll get a free copy of my book when they go to that site called The Power of Your Identity. I believe that the words that follow I am follow you and are very important. So, we construct our identity with intention. I'm healthy, wealthy, and wise. I'm an abundant. Most people, when you ask them who are they, they can't describe themselves. But if they describe themselves as somebody that was creative and somebody that could create incredible value in the marketplace doing things that they'd love, they'd probably have a higher chance of doing that than just trying to survive. And what's brewing next in your life? You know, it's the same thing is how do we help people get out of the rat race and become financially free? That's my major mission because most people spend 50% of their time doing something they don't like and that pisses me off. Hmm. So come hang with me and I'll show you how to get to a place where you're doing stuff you love. All right. Same question to you, Jim. Where can we find you and what is up next for you? Easiest place to find me is anything called White Coat Investor. You know, we've got a website, we've got a newsletter, we've got a podcast and a YouTube channel and a conference and online course and books, you name it. The idea is to take this information, this uh, empowering information for high income professionals, help them become financially literate and put it into a format they can digest that they enjoy learning in and get that information out to as many people as we can because they're just not getting it in school. What's up next for me? Well, lots of things going on. I think probably the biggest thing is we have our White Coat Investor Conference, the Physician Wellness and Financial Literacy Conference. It's coming up next March. Unfortunately, all the seats are sold out, but I'm still looking for sponsors. So if you're a sponsor, you can still come, but that's the only way to come, unfortunately. Thanks for being here. Grant, I'd like to give you a chance to promote what you got going on and anything else brewing next that you want to announce. Yeah, you can check me out at millennialmoney.com or Financial Freedom Podcast. Big announcement dropping May 1st through 3rd. The Financial Freedom Summit in partnership with FinCon is going to be you know, a 1,500-person-plus live event. I've got all of my friends together. Vicky, Robin will be there. Doc G will be there. Paul will be there. And it's going to be, uh, yeah, it's a financial independence conference, the first of its kind, and can't wait for it. And going to be making the big announcement here soon. So check that out at financialfreedomevents.com. So that's where we go to find out how we can go about getting our tickets. Is that right? Absolutely. And to learn more. Fantastic. Thanks for being on here. And thank you for bringing Vicky along. Vicky, thank you for uh, joining us. What is up next with you and where can we find you? 
Yeah, well, I have my own personal website, VickiRobin.com, and then there's the YourMoneyYourLife.com website, and you go there, and you get like this sign up for our email list, and we have a free like five-session course on this, you know, the quick and dirty on Your Money, Your Life. And there is also a very active online community in Facebook, the Your Money, Your Life community. I'm really, really liking what's happening there. People are bringing up questions. They're quite honest. There's no dissing, and it's, it's becoming quite a learning community and mutually supportive. I think that's great. And uh, that's it. You know, if you're, if you're paying attention to climate change, you'll find me a lot of places. This has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we'd like to thank Grant Sabatier, Vicki Robin, Jim Dolly, and Rock Thomas. If you would like to get updates on what Doc and I are thinking up next, you can text the word NEXT to 345-345 so you can get notified of free giveaways, opportunities to engage with the What's Up Next podcast, and maybe even be a guest on the podcast. We're adding consistent content to our Facebook group, and you can get access by texting the word NEXT to the number 345-345. That's a wrap. Very cool. That was fantastic, guys. It's I a, tried to throw a little spice in there, guys. I love you all. I just wanted to give a little... <laughs> Absolutely. And I was trying to throw a little conflict. That's why. Yeah. I we were all, there's like a little love fest in here. I wasn't. <laughs> it took me about half the podcast to get over being starstruck by being on here with Vicky. So <laughs> thanks for your work, Vicky. Your, your uh, work was uh, certainly influential on me. I'm not going to say it's the only book I ever read. But it was a book that I read and I thought about it and I said, you know what? There's a lot of truth here and I'm going to apply some of this in my life. So thanks for doing That's that. That's so great. And yeah, now, now you don't have to be starstruck anymore. Now you know me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's not about building your identity or creating I, your identity. Maybe it's about letting go of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> I want to have you on my podcast, Rock. I want to have you on my podcast. Let's do it. Let's do it. I want to throw down with you. Well, you know, if smart people are acting dumb, there's probably somebody who's benefiting from their stupidity. <laughs> well oh, said. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> That's it, guys. That's yeah. it. We're done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> done. Done. Oh, dear. We weren't recording. <laughs> oh, no. We're, we're always recording. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Man, this is a lot more instructions than the last time I was on here. <laughs> you've been to, Grant, you've been on, you were on in one of the first episodes. What happened, man? This is like, like <laughs> something <laughs> bad must have happened. <laughs> no explanation. No, actually, it just, it helps Claire. Well, okay. It's my foible. It's a dumb group. We need a lot of explanation. <laughs> it's much simpler than it sounds, I promise. Do you guys have any questions? Yeah, I want to know what Mike Rock has there. That is a sweet looking mic. <laughs> God, I, I don't know. Whatever they gave me here, I have no idea. Sorry. <laughs> sure, sure, Mike. That was a mistake. We're going to keep you all night. <laughs> we'll, we'll dip out early if we don't enjoy the conversation. <laughs> yeah. If my questions are particularly inartful. Okay. <laughs> I think that if we're creative people, I think there's plenty out there. I so I, don't agree. <laughs> this is good. This is good. I, I love the optimism. I didn't agree. That's why I spoke up. So to your point, the 37 streams of income, because I feel like you were referring to me. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a joke. Yeah. Uh, I was joking with Grant that I could write a book called I Will Teach You to Be Poor. <laughs> <laughs> but so 
Robin so- Sethi will be so proud. <laughs> <laughs> I also didn't sleep for five years, gained 55 pounds, lost most of my friends, and lost my entire late 20s. So all of those things. That, that sounds like residency. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.